0: Welcome to Season 2 of the Maternal Health Innovation Podcast. I'm your host, Erin McLean, Assistant Director and Research Associate at the UNC Collaborative for Maternal and Infant Health. This podcast is created by the Maternal Health Learning and Innovation Center at UNC Chapel Hill. Episodes are released weekly, so be sure you're subscribed. In this podcast, we listen to maternal health innovators discuss ways we can implement change to improve maternal health in the U.S. Today, we're going to examine the sexual and reproductive health experience of Black women in the South with Tanya Bass. Tanya is a sexuality educator and mental health advocate who advances health equity through cultural responsivity and inclusivity. She's also the founder of the North Carolina Sexual Health Conference. Tanya, I'm so glad you're here today. I can't wait to talk to you about this. So tell us how you became passionate about health equity and sexual health. What keeps you in this work and inspires you?
1: Yeah, I mean, when people ask me that, I always think back to being an undergraduate student. Um, my mom actually started nursing school, and um, she got pregnant with me and didn't finish. And so I was like, oh, I'm going to go to college, and I'm going to be a nurse, and I'm going to continue to fulfill my mom's like legacy, like what she started out to do. And I arrived at North Carolina Central University, and that didn't quite work out for me. And I actually changed my major to public health education. And that was in the early 90s. And of course, there was a lot going on with HIV and AIDS and also Mm -hmm. STD prevention. And so I really um, had an interest in working as a disease intervention specialist, you know, the ones who go out and investigate and do Mm -hmm. contact tracing, et cetera, for STDs. So I pursued that career in public health, but then I started working at a local health department. And I think that, those two opportunities combined like really piqued my interest in diving deep in public health and in sexual health. And then as I continued on my career, I think what also made me look at sexuality in a different way Mm -hmm. was working with persons living with HIV and AIDS and creating a curriculum about navigating the system, navigating disclosure, navigating having sex and being intimate and what does intimacy and sensuality look like. And I realized, you know, I had a very strong prevention lens. I want to expand my lens, and it's all been uphill, I think, since
0: then. And that's a real shift, isn't it? I mean, between, you know, what, especially in the early days of the HIV epidemic where folks thought, well, that's it. We don't Mm -hmm. even talk about sex anymore, right? (laughs) And so that's, that's exciting. What? are you currently working on to strengthen public health's capacity to improve sexual and reproductive health and maternal health? Because I know you've, you know, <laughs> especially with starting the North Carolina Sexual Health Conference, you've done a lot of work to really have different conversations with folks about sexuality and sexual health.
1: Yeah. Now, I know we were talking maternal child health, and babies mm-hmm. are one thing, but NC SexCon is my total baby. Like, I remember becoming— in the idea after attending so many sexual health conferences and kind of going back to the idea of like siloed work that we're all doing. You know, there would be teen pregnancy prevention conferences, HIV and STD conferences, intimate partner violence. Like, so think about all the segments around our sexuality, but there are very few that brought us all together, especially in North Carolina. Mm-hmm. So I felt like NC SetsCon could be that for North Carolina, could provide opportunities for folks to get professional development. And to engage with folks that they may not necessarily connect with, but have an idea of like how to do or understand maternal and child health and sexuality. And so that, of course, has slowed down because of COVID. But one of the things that I picked up more on is doing sexual attitude reassessment, Mm -hmm. what we call a SAR. So I'm a member of the American, I have to say it right, like the American (laughs) Association of sexuality educators, counselors, and therapists. It's one of the longest professional organizations that primarily started with educators, then included, I believe, counselors, and then later added therapists. Mm-hmm. So, in that work, you know, getting your professional development, staying abreast on critical and key things that are happening in sexuality was really important. And the SAR, I had to take those in my doctoral program. right, And so when you hear sexual attitude reassessment and professional development, most people think you're going in, you're going to learn some things, write some papers and be done. A SAR is not that. Like, it's like the reverse or whatever you can think most opposite of your professional development because it's very reflective Mm -hmm. and affective. So, you look at videos, you meet people, you hear stories, and then you reflect on your own personal feelings about it. So, are you, I use the word triggered like in air quotations, but you know, do you get an emotional response or some type of response from hearing someone who might be minor attracted or Mm -hmm. seeing someone, um, maybe a black woman, and how she's treated in the delivery room or. You know, different topics. Um, And so I've been trying to bring the SAR more to public health professionals and sexuality professionals who don't have the opportunity to go to school or have the affordability or access to become members of ASEC just yet Mm because we're hoping that will change too. And I know the science or the research is a little old on the effectiveness of a SAR, Mm -hmm. but I honestly believe from my own personal experience, every time I've participated in the SAR or conducted or facilitated this it changes something about me and how I approach
0: my work. And I think they're effective. That's so interesting. How has that been received in the public health community? Because I think that's definitely you know, not the way most of us are trained. <laughs> now, you ask a really good question. <laughs> so um, the first time I did it in North Carolina, I did it with some
1: professionals who I would say again, more seasoned or kind of understood what the star was. Like you are right. looking at very graphic materials and videos and hearing things that may make you unsettled, which is the point. Right. And so I feel like that first group was more attuned to what was happening, but they couldn't get out of there. The thing is you have to get out of your brain. Like you're mm-hmm. learning something, but it's really about how you feel and how do you work through these feelings in your work. The second group in North Carolina, I think their their socks were blown off. And I think they came in with the idea of like, this is what I'm gonna take back to my local health department. And like, this is not that kind of training, right? No. Yeah. Um I also had a group in Kansas City mm-hmm. and they were phenomenal. So they also included, I thought this was interesting, they included some administrative staff oh, to <laughs> so. Some of those staff were taken aback, but ultimately it's been received well, but you have to push people to process. I mean, as a public health educator, the way I started out, I didn't want to think either. I I mean, you know, I didn't want to feel. I was just like, here's the information. I'm providing it for you. I guess I care about how you feel about it, but ultimately I need your behavior to change.
0: Right. But now yeah. it's kind of
1: like, why do I feel this way? Or why might it be hard for me to talk about condom usage? What, what's mm-hmm. going on in my world that makes it hard to talk about condoms? Or um, I will disclose openly, I had a very hard time with individuals who um, were attracted to minors mm-hmm. and those who might be, well, who were identified as pedophiles. And I had to like really reflect on that mm-hmm. and think like, whoa. This is something that's connected. I've experienced people in my life who have done harmful things to children. And now I know why I don't want to talk about it. Or I don't like, you know, I kind of breeze through that in some of my education. But I can talk more about sexual assault and child sexual abuse. But if you go into a deep story about something, that really bothers me. Right. Yeah.
0: How do you think that connects to, you know, I think there's been a lot of efforts, particularly in maternal health, given the rates of death of, you know, Black women, Indigenous women, to start to talk about bias and mm-hmm. um, implicit bias to talk about structural racism from what I'm seeing is there's still a lot of um, tendency to intellectualize yeah. um, and to learn about bias or to learn about racism and not think what a, what's going on in me right like yeah. what's going on in my emotions and how I relate to people and and all of that like you know, there, there's a little bit of conversation about doing that work, but the focus has been on okay, well, we you took the training, right, right, right. like, and we're done. So, right. do you feel like this is something that could also be used or adapted and to kind of look on, at those issues as well?
1: Absolutely. So, one of the biggest intentions with my the stars that I facilitate, and I will say, I believe a lot of my other colleagues are being more intentional. Because a lot of the SAR content materials and videos didn't even show people of color, right? Wow. So that's that's this one thing, and then so that's a big shift within the whole sexuality exactly, education world, okay. exactly. And then most recently, in the last two SARs that I've done, we're very intentional in showing Black women sexuality mm-hmm. and looking at ideas around um, generational or intergenerational communication. About sex, about birthing, about what it means to be a Black femme or female, in particular, looking at pleasure and pain and what that means in um, the community, especially like what's being socialized and what's being accepted. And we use hip hop too in one of the, the last yeah. SAR to kind of juxtapose like, here are some hip hop lyrics that talks about like Black sexuality, um, Black female sexuality. And then here are some clips and some research articles that talk about black maternal child health, birthing outcomes, also abuse mm-hmm. in the black community. And then with a mixed group of participants, that was probably the most tense part of that, Sar. Like, yeah. it was hard for me to be quiet and let the participants participate because our intention was clear. Right. I didn't want it to defend that, but everyone received it in a different way. And so the dialogs I want to say we were supposed to end like at, 6 o'clock, I think we continued on to like 7.30, because people really needed to process that and Mm -hmm. process that
0: from their own worldview and perspective and give space for each other. Yeah. Did you get a lot of pushback? Because I know there's been, you know, historically, there's been terrible stereotypes about, you know, black women's sexuality and that, you know, hypersexuality and all sorts of things. Did you get pushback from the group about you know why are you bringing this yes. into the space? <laughs>
1: okay. Yeah, so the pushback like after you know so we I think we just opposed it where we saw and um, we listened to music mm-hmm. and we wrote down the lyrics and processed the lyrics and then we transitioned into talking to black female sexuality maternal child health and then we let people so you know with the sar again it's a lot of talking and reflecting mm-hmm. and I think in that space, you know, we don't want to control it, but people have to be mindful of their space. And we had a participant say some really seeming, I don't even want to say seemingly, as a black woman, they were harmful things. It was their perspective of what they heard and what they saw. And then a black woman who was a participant said, you know, she could feel tension in her body after this person spoke up and felt like we needed to continue. And in fairness, you know, we, it it was a 14 hour SAR. Think about this. (laughs) We were on day two. It was day two. Wow. How do, we, you know, we couldn't make space for everything. We have to have time to discuss. And people felt like, you know, this was the end of the day. They pushed back on the fact that why was it at the end of the day? They pushed mm-hmm. back on us allowing people to free flow in their discussion, but that's how the SAR was so, set up. We didn't right. put parameters around that. But then um, we just made space for them to continue the dialogue. But, yeah, I think we were getting opposition from both sides, and that's what made it hard for me to stay quiet because I'm like, yeah, we did this intentionally. Like, Mm -hmm. this is supposed to happen, you're supposed to have this dialogue, and then you're Mm -hmm. supposed to go home and think about what you said, what you didn't say, Mm -hmm. what you heard, and maybe some things you didn't hear and things that you just noticed in the other
0: participants. That is so interesting. So, you know, in— in thinking about these types of topics that would come up in that setting or even just as you're seeing, you know, one of the things I think the last um, NC NCSexCon that I attended, one of the presenters mentioned that the group of attendees was so different than any other sexual health conference he had ever been to. Mm-hmm. You know, it was um, largely women of color. It was people, like you said, from all sorts of different professions, you know, public health folks teen pregnancy prevention folks, um, therapists, counselors, um, what are some of the sexual health issues that you feel like black women are fate and birthing people face specifically in the South and how are those maybe the same or different than other areas of the country? And is, you know, kind of what does our culture kind of uniquely kind of influence or bring to this set of issues that women are having to deal with?
1: Yeah, I, I first want to address the idea around NC setscon and who attended. So I think that we definitely you hear the motto. Um, I feel like it was maybe Sister Song could be Planned Parenthood, but it's like trust Black women, right? I think mm-hmm. it was Sister Song. So you have to trust Black women as a the founder of the conference as a Black woman. I definitely know that my colleagues wanted to support NC SExCon and they needed NC SExCon mm-hmm. just as much as I needed them to support that. The second thing I've noticed in our work and even during my master's, not my master's, but my dissertation, Mm -hmm. I was assessing the um, comfort and capability of sexuality educators in North Carolina, all sexuality educators, predominantly black women showed up again. And so I think what we see, maybe not in the leadership, but definitely on a community level, and it certainly has been my experience. I think I've worked at three local health departments and most Mm -hmm. of the folks doing maternal child health in the community, Mm -hmm are black women. So we show up time and time again for each other. Now to get to your question, I think some of the issues are that we aren't trusting black women. We aren't trusting, so even though we're working in the community with Mm -hmm. each other, I think from the programmatic level, we aren't really listening often. So I think we're doing better at listening to the stories Mm -hmm. of black women. Understanding their lived experience is just as much of evidence as any statistical data. So I think we're getting better. I think also we have to think about that experience, and even with the people that work in the community, mm-hmm. is that it's it's layered. So when we're right. talking about the SAR, we all bring our personal experience, the way we were socialized. It was intergenerational, maybe trauma mm-hmm. or poor or great communication. So I feel like in the South, we are at an emergent place where— I, at least I can, I can speak for myself. Like I'm mm-hmm. thinking about g- three generations, you know, my mother, my grandmother, and myself. And the conversations, well, maybe I should add four because now I have my nieces, right? Yeah. And so the conversations that my mom has with my nieces are completely different than <laughs> what she had with me and definitely different than what my grandmother had with me and what my grandmother had with her. And so I feel like we're getting to the place where we are being more open and honest about our sexuality Mm -hmm. about our uh, reproductive experiences. Like uh, I have a family who had a history of fibroids Mm -hmm. and I remember not knowing why my grandmother was sick until I was an adult. Like, oh, I didn't know this is what was going on. So I think that we are at a place where we're having more conversations and we can embrace our own sexual health, reproductive health, maternal health in a way that now my nieces have a way Better um, line of communication with me, mm-hmm. with my mom, and hopefully with their mothers as well. Because you know they're my brother's kids, so we you know it's kind of like through uh, a different line. But I still feel like yeah. we're we're growing in that way. And I think in our state we're seeing that. I think the younger generation has more access to more information, mm-hmm. and they're asking more questions now. It's the older adults and adults. Who have to be more responsive to answer these questions openly and honestly, and even
0: with saying, "My mother didn't teach me that," or "I yeah. didn't know that." I think that's a great point. I have a 16 year old daughter, <laughs> and um, you know, who's been out, um, you know, as pansexual since she was in. Gosh, fifth grade, Mm -hmm. things that I never would have talked to my parents openly about. And, you know, super comfortable. She has friends of all sorts of gender spectrum and, you know, sexual orientation. And it's just, I think the hand wringing that adults often do about these topics are just not an issue in the same way for them. That Mm -hmm. they have so, like you said, so much access to information and, So much openness, I think, which Mm -hmm. has been really fun to watch. Her friends really navigate all of these developmental changes that they're going through Mm -hmm. and actually talking to each other, but also each other's parents, which I think is really exciting and definitely did not happen
1: (laughs) when I was in high school in
0: the 90s, you know.
1: (laughs) But I think how exciting for your child to have that information and knowledge to to at least kind of identify what they're going through versus, you know, I still teach at North Carolina Central University. And I remember last year when we were talking about um, sexual identity, one of the students openly said that, you know, they're understanding more about asexuality, Mm -hmm. but it wasn't until they came to college, right, that they really could figure out for themselves how to identify for themselves. Mm
0: -hmm. Tanya, tell me, what are some common misconceptions that sexuality educators, sexual health educators are hearing right now, whether that's pandemic related or um, things that you're hearing from birthing people?
1: I think just the way you ask a question is one of the biggest things. Like you just said birthing people. And so one of the challenges, I guess I'll call it, but ways that we're really providing education, at least in my experience and a lot of my colleagues, is getting people to understand sexual identity and what that looks like. And in two ways, helping them understand sexual identity as it relates from a gender identity um, perspective and maybe I'll use sexual orientation perspective. Mm-hmm. You know, when we hear the term LGBTQIA+, plus, there's a lot in there, But helping people understand, you know, and in terms of being transgender, gender non-binary, and using language that is affirming to Mm -hmm. those um, individuals who identify in that way, Um, we had a lot of dialogue around chest feeding versus breastfeeding, you know. And I know people have a lot of things that they hold true and they value, and we never want to discount that. But we also want people to feel affirmed, Mm -hmm. and we also want people to feel included and to be included, not just feel included, but be included in the programming that we actually do. Another aspect of that is really thinking about how we use our language, right? So oftentimes you'll hear people like use, I work at a place where sometimes people use gendered language, like ladies and gentlemen or Mm -hmm. ladies. And ideally, I think their intention is just like, I want to be welcoming, but the impact, like we keep going back to intent versus impact and really just learning to write in a different way, to speak in a different way and to present our written materials. Or, you know, our marketing materials, educational materials in a different way. And it's like, it's not hard, but I feel like there's so much resistance to doing it. And that's one of the biggest challenges I feel like we're facing. Where do you
0: feel like that resistance is coming from?
1: I think a lot of it is based on lack of understanding and knowledge. And Mm -hmm. that there are some folks who we all can hold on to our identity and like what we and what we identify. But we also have to give way for people who don't align with us in that same way. And so I think a lot of it is like not really understanding sexuality as a whole and that every, even though we have these labels, which I hate and I know I sometimes (laughs) teach from it, but being able to say, okay, so here's how this is set up and why we use this quote unquote label, but then here's what goes against that and why this may not even make sense for everybody because everybody doesn't align in these boxes the way we assume that they would and I use the example of like saying bisexual mm-hmm. so bisexual literally is dependent on the binary so is gay or lesbian because it's saying a woman who's uh, attracted to or in romantic relationship or sexual relationship with another woman but if you don't identify in that way are you then not a lesbian or right. how do you, you know what I mean and so it can be complicated but I think we have to take time to understand learn and then change awesome
0: thanks Tanya. What excites you about kind of what's coming up next and um, both in your own work, but also in the work that you're seeing kind of across maternal health in the United States right now?
1: I think what excites me most is the opportunity in a good way to kind of go back to relying on community support. Mm -hmm. I I think we lost a little bit. I I don't know how. I don't know if it was funding. I don't know if it was just people— like our work lives and programmatically things change. But it feels like we're getting back to community fundamentals that we are mm-hmm. able to have these networks, these groups, these community based grassroots organizations, support groups and opportunities for women to and families to like connect with one another. I'm really excited about that. I'm also excited from like the professional standpoint is that you know, we're now not being as siloed. We're we're, we're working on it. And I know funding <laughs> makes us feel like, you know, we're all running for the same piece of cheese. But ultimately, right. I feel like we're looking at how do we cross collaborate? How do we address and advance health equity? We're calling things out more mm-hmm. and people are holding us accountable from the community end. And then we have advocates, you know, programmatically on the state level and the federal level who are holding folks accountable and looking at, You know, even with the best intention, your program can have a negative impact. And I think we're thinking more thoughtful about that. And that's exciting to me. Thank you. That
0: is exciting. So in our region of North Carolina, our perinatal nurse champion is doing a really fabulous job. Her name's um, Kimberly Harper. Is doing a great job at pulling together as the maternal health provider support network, Mm. not just physicians and nurses and midwives, like the typical folks that we would think of, but pelvic PT folks and sexuality folks and doulas and community health workers Mm -hmm. and other folks who are really, truly part of the maternal health team. And one of the things that I found really interesting is that we had a session with a pelvic health PT, as well as a very frank discussion about sexuality Mm post-birth. And those have been some of our best attended conversations and webinars, because I feel like the traditional medical and nursing education really doesn't touch it. Do you have thoughts about ways in which those folks and I think also public health folks can learn more or, you know, I think attending things like NC SexCon is really important, but for those who maybe aren't close to something like that, or, you know, maybe don't know how to access those materials, are there good online resources or articles or books that you would really recommend Oh,
1: yes. There are so many um, resources online. Um, I think about a homegrown sexuality professional, Dr. Shamika Thorpe does a lot of research. Mm -hmm. And when I was mentioning the SAR and we were talking about pleasure and pain, we were looking at a lot of her research Mm -hmm. Um, in that research. So when you think about it in community, sometimes, and the the reason why we even use like kind of like Lyrics just opposed to that, mm-hmm. so there is some wanted pain sometimes that people right. have during intercourse, sure. but then the unwanted pain. But if it's socialized and communicated in your community that that's a, that's the way sex is supposed to feel, mm-hmm. then you're not likely to seek out any medical support or information about this pain because you think it's expected. You think that's how it's supposed to be, and so you're not you're not going to have conversations about public floor therapist. You're not going to talk about that. And you may not even um, be able, like maybe you want to parent and maybe you want to become pregnant, but sex is so painful that you might avoid it Mm -hmm. because you're thinking that you're going to experience so much pain or perhaps you have given birth and now you're experiencing this pain. I think that we have to have these conversations. We have to keep it real. So that's why having these lived experiences, Mm -hmm. looking at the research, of what people identify as areas of like why pain was normalized and given the resources and learning that a lot of black women in particular or women in general, but really black women and women of color aren't aware that pelvic floor therapists are available. And then the flip side of that, seeking a therapist and knowing that there are not many women of color or people of color who are actually providing these services. And I think that's changing. So Shamika Thorpe is definitely someone that I would recommend looking at their research.
0: I think that's a really great point about pain being normalized Mm -hmm. and the, and especially when medical providers don't always have a good answer or solution. Right. If somebody finally gets the courage to even bring it up and then they get shut down, then it's you've just perpetuated even more harm. So I think this is um, exciting that we're hearing that folks want to learn this information and want to know how to talk to people about it and not feel so embarrassed or ashamed of themselves to even talk about it or bring it up. But I think they're still looking for resources on how to do it. So thank you for the the references. I think that's exciting.
1: Yeah. And I'm really excited that more and more medical providers, whether it's in their actual preparation or after they've um, started practicing, are getting more sexual health education or sexual education for Mm -hmm. themselves. Because I know in the last few years, I think less than 20 hours were provided. And I went to Widener University, and I remember some graduates and some professors were providing consultation to, I want to say it was the American Medical Association with Mm -hmm. students of all types to get more information on that. And I've seen more where like breast cancer survivors, so like Mm -hmm. oncologists and also OBGYNs and other maternal um, health providers, are getting more professional development and being more open to the needs of their patients and their community around sex and sexuality, specifically around pain mm-hmm. and life after, like right. life after birth uh, or sex life after birth or mm-hmm. sex life
0: after um, mastectomy or um, cancer diagnosis. That is so great. Is there anything else that I didn't ask you that you want to make sure to talk about?
1: Yeah, I was thinking about maternal health and mental health and mm-hmm. sexual health. So a lot of times people, again, we're siloed because, you know, there are mental health professionals, there's sexual health professionals, right. and there's maternal child health professionals or even public health professionals. But we're all working towards, you know, healthy outcomes for mothers or people who can give birth and as far as children who come into the world. I think right. that we can say that that's a part of it. And so when we think about it, mental health is essential to all those aspects. Mm-hmm. We talk about postpartum depression. You talk about, like, folks who may have very identities that, you know, their gender or their sexual identity may not be the socialized norm, right? right. That causes, you know, we look at data and we can see how much um, mental health crisis that people of the LGBTQ community have to endure and then the lack of acceptance and different things that challenge them. So I feel like we have to ensure that whatever our programming is, that we look at um, mental health as well. I just left an organization called Active Minds, and we were mm-hmm. talking, like, I'm like the sex person, but I'm also a health equity person. But I remember my um, supervisor, my program manager, just was starting to listen more to what was happening in the sexual health world and was like, you know what? Mental health is connected to that. At first, <laughs> I wasn't sure how this was going to go, but she she got it. And she was like, I understand it better. And literally sometimes it just takes time for us to sit down look at the data, listen to people's experiences, and
0: then know how it all connects. How can our listeners connect with you? Yeah. Kind of what's, what's next for you and how how can they connect? Well, what's next is we were
1: trying to decide if we were going to have NC Con. I don't think we will have a full conference. We're not sure because, you know, the end of the year is right I here. Know. But we are definitely going to bring SAR to North Carolina. We're hoping to have two, one in the fall and it will specifically be looking at centering the voices of um, Black women and 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 communities of color. And then I think it will be sometime in the spring. We're gonna we haven't named it yet, but it's very North Carolina, very Southern, very specific. Like we're hoping to um, spend some time at Stagville and talk about sexuality and racism and the impact of slavery. We're looking at um, going to NCCU and talking about you know just overall. Understanding HBCUs and just Black culture and gender identity. We typically have like folks across the gender and sexual identity uh, spectrum, and we might even have like a drag performance. We don't know yet. That's like exciting. we're really talking about different things and bringing in folks who can speak to the lived experiences as well as what research is saying to get people to really sit back and reflect.
0: So that's exciting. That is very exciting. How is it best for folks to connect with you? What are the best ways to reach you
1: sure so my website is tanya and and my email is tanya at tanya but i'm also on instagram and i love folks to slide in my dm so it's dr yeah. tanya and Bass on instagram as well
0: thank you so much this has been so fun to talk with you and hear about your work thanks everybody for listening for more podcasts, videos, blogs, and maternal health content, visit the Maternal Health Learning and Innovation Center website at maternalhealthlearning.org. We want to hear from you. Tell us what you want to hear more of, review our podcasts. share with like-minded innovators. We've got some great episodes recording now. Be sure you're subscribed. Let's keep talking. Tag us in your posts using hashtag maternal health innovation. I'm Erin McLean. We'll see you again next week on the Maternal Health Innovation Podcast. This project is supported by the Health Resources and Service Administration, HRSA, of the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, HHS,
1: under grant number U7-CMC-33636, State Maternal Health Innovation Support and Implementation Program Cooperative Agreement. This information or content and conclusions are those of the author and should not be construed as the official position or policy nor should any endorsements be inferred by HRSA, HHS, or the U.S. government.